Well, today I have uh, the privilege to introduce you to uh, a friend of mine named uh, Chad Wraith. Chad was here about three years ago and, uh, and preached a sermon uh, three years ago here. He and his family um, have, have come to visit us this weekend. They arrived on Friday with their six children. So we have had 10 kids in our house the last couple of days. It has been full and fun, and you know all about that already. But um, it's, we've just had a great time together. Um, Chad and his wife, um, Ansley, have been dear friends of Katie and ours for close to 20 years now. And um, Chad, if you want to come on up, um, there are a lot of things that, a lot of honorifics that I could say about Chad, um, but I think what would be most important for you all to know um, is, that, is that Chad is, is one of my closest friends, and uh, much of who I am today um, is because of the friendship that we've shared over the last um, close to 20 years. Um, and so really grateful for him. He's going to continue in our time in the book of, of Philippians, um, talking about the call to maturity and Christ-likeness. And uh, so much of what we've sung about today um, is going to be brought out through the preaching of the word today. So um, I'm going to read the text for us. It's Philippians chapter 3. If you would turn in your Bibles there, and we'll go to verse 11. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 2, Paul writes, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we thank you for this word to us, written by your servant Paul 2,000 years ago, and we thank you for the word that will be spoken to us today through your servant Chad. God, I pray that it would be your word to us today. I pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. How am I on sound? It's always, are we good? Can you hear me fine? Well, it's good to be with you this morning, uh, brothers and sisters at Broadway. Uh, It's good to be back with you. Um, I want you to know I think of you often, and I get to pray for you often because I hear of what's going on here through Ryan I think we talk every day almost uh, in our text threads and in our conversations, so it's good to actually be with you because I hear about you uh, very frequently and all the great things that God is doing in this place. Um, What a cool place. I know 
we kind of wish we lived in Fort Wayne sometimes uh, to go to church here. Um, and for many other reasons, it's a really cool place to be. So uh, currently, uh, just so you know a little bit about me, um, my current vocation in life, if you will, my current job, I like to think of it as a calling, though, as a vocation. Um, I work for a Catholic health care system, uh, one of the largest Catholic health care systems in the United States. It's called Ascension. Uh, there are many Catholic health care systems there, and I'm the chief mission integration officer uh, at Ascension right now. And if you're, you work for any kind of organization or any kind of company, I mean, you know that uh, every organization has a way of accounting for itself, a way of kind of assessing uh, how it's doing as an organization. I mean, you may hear terms like EBITDA, or you'll hear cash on hand, um, sometimes gross revenue, you know, these sort of phrases we use. Uh, one way that we keep an account for how well we're doing as an organization is, is sometimes called a P&L sheet, too, profits and losses. Or sometimes you may think of assets and liabilities. So basically you're listing out what are some of your assets, you know, and what are your liabilities in order to just account for how you're handling yourself as an organization, right? Um, and if anybody's ever done an asset liability sheet or profit loss sheet, you know that what you put down as your assets and what you put down as your losses is all going to depend upon the mission of the organization, like why you exist, what's your purpose, what's your reason for existence. And that reason for existence, that purpose for why you exist as an organization will ultimately determine what you account for as an asset and what you account for as a liability. I mean, just to give you a, an example, if your organization's purpose is to make phones and sell them, then if you have a, a store in a geographical location where people can't afford your phones, that's going to be an asset or a liability. Liability, right? Because your purpose is to sell phones, and if you put a store in a place that people can't afford your phones, uh, that's bad business practice, right? That's a liability. If you're Catholic healthcare, however, if you put a clinic in a location in which people cannot afford your services, it's actually an asset because our mission in Catholic healthcare is ultimately to serve all persons, especially those that are poor and vulnerable. And in fact, as part of our identity as a not-for-profit Catholic healthcare organization, faith-based, we have to show an accounting of a certain amount of charity care, care that we do for the poor and um, those that are underserved, those that are vulnerable in various ways. So for us, our mission lends a clinic and a place where people can't afford it to be an asset rather than a liability. So the whole point is your purpose and mission and goal as an organization will shape what you consider to be assets and liabilities. And it's no true with your life, too. Assign, and Philippians have called a maturity, a sign of spiritual maturity, a sign of just maturity as a human being is the ability to step back and take an accounting of your life and assess what really is your purpose and your goals and what then in your life have you in place that you would consider to be an asset or liability given the goals or the purpose for which you set for your life. The ability to step back and reflect and to take an accounting of yourself is part of the, the journey towards maturity to do this practice. Now, you may be wondering, you know, why did I come out of the gate talking about accounting of all things, right, in a sermon? And why am I using all this financial language and this notion of assessing your life and accounting and, and assets and losses? And the very reason is, is because that's what Paul does in Philippians 3. 
When you read Philippians 3, Paul uses throughout the passage we read accounting language. He's intentionally using financial language, language of assets, language of liabilities. And he's addressing, when he reflects on his life, what he considers to be in the asset column and what he considers to be in the liability column, given his purpose for his life. And so now I'm going to give you the punchline of the whole sermon. I'm just right here at the beginning, and then we're going to back into it and get into it. So the punchline of the whole sermon, when we read Philippians 3, especially verses 2 through 11, is that according to Paul, your purpose and your goal in life should be to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if that is your purpose and your goal, then you should have one single asset on the books. And that is to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I'm going to get to how he gets to that point throughout the rest of the sermon. Because what I hope to do this morning is to help you feel a little bit or get a little bit or, or, or appreciate to some extent how absolutely radical, difficult, controversial Paul's message would have been to those that first heard it in the Jewish context in which he was operating. Because Paul's letters are in our Bible, because we read them all the time, it's easy to just accept them at face value and to assume this is true because it's already in your Bibles. But if you'd have lived in the first century and heard what he had to say initially in your particular Jewish context, his message would have been, in the words of Peter, difficult teaching. And he would have been considered very controversial and would have had to fight for his message to be accepted. It was not easily accepted. And I want to give you a sense of why that's the case. Now, when it comes to the Paul or Saul of Tarsus, later Paul, everything that we know about him seems to suggest that this man was zealous his entire life for religion, for religious purposes, for his faith, for his convictions for Yahweh. He seems to have been passionate about it, and he seems to have taken it very... He was a Yahweh freak, okay, back in the day. This guy took it very seriously and shaped his life as he got older according to a deep conviction about his love for Yahweh. And so the place he went to school, the groups he associated with, the way he lived out his faith was very, and this is a buzzword in the Jewish context, zealous. He was zealous for Yahweh. And as he looked at his life and assessed his life, the things that he lists in Philippians 3 that I want to go through would have been considered tremendous assets in this context circumcised on the eighth day. What that means is that he is a Jew from birth. He's no convert. He's been a Jew his entire life. He's been part of the covenant, the covenant with Yahweh his entire life. 
He's from the nation of Israel. Not only the nation of Israel, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. In the Old Testament, the only tribe that did not fall from the faith was Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, of all the 12. And he's saying, I'm from that one. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And usually that's interpreted to mean he speaks the native tongue. He is authentic in terms of his embodiment of the Jewish faith. He speaks God's language, if you will, which is not Latin. I think it is, but it's, it's Hebrew. For in, in terms of zeal, he didn't just complain about the church. He persecuted the church. He did something about it. He didn't sit on his hands. In terms of the righteousness of the law, blameless. Now, that doesn't mean he would have considered himself to be without sin, but when you're blameless according to the righteousness of the law, it means that you're keeping the law as it's designed, which includes sacrifices for sin. So he was participating in all the rituals, ceremonies, and sacrifices that the law required in order to be in this loving covenant with Yahweh. And all of these things he lists would have at one point in his life been considered assets, tremendous assets. These are things that his mom and dad would have, been, would, would, would have considered assets. These are the things his grandmother and grandfather would have taught him as being assets. These are the things that would have been considered assets for 100, 200 a thousand years of history and heritage and tradition, these would have been considered the positive things you have in your life to be in a loving covenant relationship with Yahweh. Now, why would they consider these things to be assets? Why would Paul consider it to be an asset? Why would his parents and his grandparents because God thinks of them as assets. And this is what you got to remember. These aren't assets being circumcised and being passionate for the law and whatnot. Because it's a man-made religion, this is what God said to do to be in relationship with them. So these are assets to Paul because they're assets to God. Because God said they were assets. And now Paul is writing, I consider all of these things to be a liability in comparison to knowing the Messiah. At some point in his life, and we can read about it in Acts, Paul encounters Jesus as the Messiah. He comes to a point of believing, Paul, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And that encounter caused him to reevaluate everything in light of Jesus being the Messiah. And now he's going around telling people, <laughs> you don't need circumcision. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, the God of Jesus and the God of Christianity <laughs> is the God of of the Jew, I mean, it's the one that gave the covenant. It's not like we've got the God of the Jews and the Jewish way of religion, and we're going to set that aside and go with the God of Christians, you know, like God of Jesus, and, and we're going to follow Jesus. There's not two gods at work here. There's only one God. So now the same God that said, be circumcised, Paul's going around and saying, don't be circumcised. 
or it's irrelevant to be circumcised. And this would have been extreme, like messages like this would have been extremely controversial. But for some reason and in some way of thinking, Paul's encounter with Jesus as the Messiah rearranged his entire profits and loss sheet, assets and liabilities sheet, so that he now puts one thing on his asset sheet, and that is to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, I want to set a little context for this, a little broader context in the first century as to why Paul's message, I want to amp it up even more as to why his message was difficult, kind of hard to hear, controversial. If you think about encountering Jesus for the first time, when Jesus is walking around living in the first century, um, and, and you're just a typical Jewish person that lived in the first century as well, you're walking around living out your Jewish faith as a Jew, your Jewish, you know, clothes and Jewish games and songs and foods, and you're just being a Jew in the first century. There's a few things you tell yourself, the story you tell yourself as a Jew that helps you, under, helps you orient yourself as to what it means to be a Jew. And there's four major things that you would continue to remind yourself that formed your identity as a Jewish person in the first century, and before the first century, but certainly the first century. The first would have been Abraham. You knew Abraham. You knew God had called Abraham and that God had chosen Abraham to be the means by which God was going to bless the entire world through his seed. And you identified yourself as part of that lineage, part of that heritage. And in fact, if you were a male, you embodied on your body a sign of being part of that covenant of Abraham, that lineage of Abraham. And that's what we call circumcision, right? So you knew Abraham. You knew Father Abraham walking around first century Palestine. I mean, you, that, you're confident about Abraham, Yahweh, and Abraham. You also were confident about Yahweh and Moses. You knew God had called Moses and set Moses aside as the greatest prophet through whom God would reveal the entire system of religion that you practice, all the ceremonies, all the rituals, all the laws that shaped how you lived out your faith. And so you were confident in the Torah, in the law, because you knew God had chosen Moses and through Moses had revealed this way of being in a loving relationship with God through the Torah. You also knew David, King David, and David was particularly important because it's with King David that we go from the people of God, you go from them being just the people of God to the nation of God or the kingdom of God. Because now you've got David the king. And you know from 2 Samuel 7 that God had promised David that there was going to be someone to sit on the throne perpetually, forever, that there was going to be someone who reigned over Israel, over, the, over you as a Jew, forever. But you also knew the fourth movement of the story, which is Babylonian exile. And you recall in 586 B.C., this is when the Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, displaced the people, and things since then had never been fully right. Even as you walk around in the first century, you still don't have your own king. You have, I mean, after the Babylonians came the Persians, and then came the Greeks, and now especially brutal 
and disrespectful (laughs) were the Romans. And so as you walked around in the first century, you knew you were ruled by another. And you had a sense that God had not finished doing what God was going to do. You had a deep conviction about that, of being oppressed, of looking for redemption, looking for a way to come out from under the oppression of the Romans and to set up your own kingdom. And you thought of the one, the Messiah, to come as being part of that liberation. You thought of the Messiah to come as the one who would be the deliverer or the redeemer from this oppression, right? So you knew Abraham, you knew Moses, you knew David, you knew exile and, and the, the hope of restoration, and you were looking for that. We even know, like, right until the time of Jesus coming, there was a lot more um, speculation about different messiahs. Was this the one? Was this not the one that had come before the person of Jesus? So there was this real intense expectation by the time you get to the first century of a deliverer to come. So you knew that. You knew Moses. You knew David. You knew Abraham. What you did not know is who is this Jesus from Nazareth. That's what you were trying to figure out. You weren't trying to figure out Abraham. You were trying to figure out Moses. You were trying to figure out Jesus and who he was. You observed his teachings. You observed his actions. And for the majority of us, remember, we're all first century Jews in my little imagination right now. We're all first century Jews. The majority of us in this room would have concluded at the end of the day that Jesus was not the Messiah, but the anti-Jew. We would have concluded that Jesus was transgressing God, not God sent one for redemption. And we would have been in the crowd. Most of us here today would have been in the crowd going crucify, 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 believing we were serving Yahweh, believing we were serving God. Because at the end of the day, we could not fit Jesus into Abraham, Moses, David, and the rest. But then there's some, there will be some that follow and listen and observe who go, you know, there's something here. There is something going on here just by his actions, his words. And they would have come to the conclusion, you know what? I think he's the... I think he's the one. I mean, I think he's the one we've been waiting for, the deliverer, the redeemer, the anointed one. Of course, Messiah is Greek for anointed, and that's where we get Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah. So we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah in the Hebrew. It's not his last name, right? I mean, it's not like Bobby Joe, Billy, Sue, and Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a title. Christ is a title, you know, this Messiah. Um, So some of us would have been like, "I I think he is. I think this is the one. But then he's crucified, and it's game over. Even for those that thought he was the one, when he's crucified, it's no, it's over. And how do we know that? Read the end of Luke. I love the end of Luke because that's the passage where uh, the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. And, and Jesus has risen, but they don't know he's risen. And I always say cheeky Jesus because he kind of walks up to them and they don't know it's him. And he's asking, what are y'all talking about? <laughs> and they're like, they're like, well, you know, have, where have you been? They basically look at him and go, where have you been? 
you know, don't you know what's happened here over the past few days? And he's like, what things? You know, I, I love his way of like just drawing them out in that way. And they tell him, if you read that passage, what they say to the risen Jesus, and they don't know it's him. They said, we had hoped he was the one. But because they put him to death, the authorities, Romans and the religious leaders put him to death. Game over, not the one. And then there's the resurrection. And the resurrection is the hinge upon which our confession of Jesus as the Messiah hinges on. If there is no resurrection of the dead, says Paul, we are but fools. And there's a reason for that. It's with the resurrection that God, Yahweh, vindicates Jesus as his Messiah. That's when we know he's the one. And so even for us that would have walked around while Jesus lived and said he was the Messiah, it would not have been until the resurrection of the dead that we'd have gone, oh, yeah, he is the Messiah. But now I have to rethink what Messiah means because it didn't fit into the typical story or narrative of what you thought the Messiah was going to be and what you thought the Messiah was going to do, right? So one key question that you're, as a first century Jew now, having to decide is, is he the Messiah? And eventually Paul comes to that conclusion. Not, he did not always think that, and in fact he thought the people of the Messiah were anti Jewish movement, and out of zeal, he persecuted the church. He persecuted those that believed Jesus was the Messiah, and then he meets Jesus as the Messiah, and everything changes for him at that point. Second question, though, and this gets pertains to Philippians 3 even more. The second major question, though, you have to ask yourself is, okay, so he's the Messiah. Now what? Now, how do we go about living our faith if he's, in fact, the Messiah? Because remember, the God of Jesus is the God of circumcision, is the God of the Torah. So it stands to reason, as many followers of Jesus as the Messiah concluded, that even though you confess him to be the Messiah— since God is the same God of circumcision, the law, and Jesus, then going forth, we embody Jesus as the Messiah and circumcision and the law. It's the God of both. So you would consider how you embody the Christian faith going forward as being one of embracing Jesus as the Messiah and the practice of circumcision and the keeping of the Torah. All the ceremonies, sacrifices, all the purity laws, the food laws, etc., etc. It made sense because the same God was the God of both. And in fact, that's what we actually find if you read Acts. You'll see Pharisees or Jews who had become Christians preaching you also must be circumcised. Makes logical sense. It's the same God of both. Why would you not? Then Paul comes onto the scene, and this is why his message was so hard to get your head around, and so controversial, and so scandalous to many Christians, Jews who had begun to follow Jesus as a Messiah, 
to many of those people because he is now going about saying the God of circumcision now doesn't require circumcision to follow God. I mean, he's basically saying the God that gave circum you want to follow God. Okay. That God that you want to follow told you to be circumcised. You, you, you know, that's what he said. In fact, he cares so much about circumcision. You remember the passage with Moses? Moses didn't circumcise his whole home. This is Moses, people. This is the greatest prophet. And God threatens to kill Moses for not circumcising his own home. This is where his wife steps up, circumcises everyone on his behalf, and throws the foreskin at his feet. That's marriage counseling probably happened after that. That's serious stuff right there. I mean, my wife and I have disagreed, but woo, that takes it to a whole new level right there. But they knew that's how much God cared about circumcision. And now Paul's saying that God that you want to follow that cares that much about circumcision, you don't have to do it anymore. What do you mean I don't have to do it anymore? Oh, by the way, you don't have to keep the law either. That's what, that's what we do. We're Jews. <laughs> That's how we understand our relationship. So I understand Jesus is the Messiah, but why are we setting aside circumcision? Why are we setting aside the law? And in fact, Paul's preaching was so controversial and caused so much stir in his time that the first ever church council in history was called to sort this out. And that's what we read in Acts chapter 15. It's the Council of Jerusalem. This is when they go up to Jerusalem to all the elders in Jerusalem and come before them. And the there's Christians who think you should be circumcised arguing with Paul, who says you shouldn't be because of Jesus being the Messiah. And they present their case. And lo and behold, the church comes down on the side of Paul and agrees through his interpretive framework of what it means to encounter Jesus and Messiah. You don't have to be circumcised anymore and you don't have to keep the law. And at that moment, that changed the entire trajectory of what would become what we know as Christianity. Because at that point, the decision was made that you don't first have to be Jewish to be Christian. That was the major question. Do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? In other words, do you have to have circumcision and keep the Torah to follow Jesus as the Messiah? And the decision was made, no, you don't. So Gentiles as Gentiles are now coming into the church, not having to become Jews, converts to Judaism. And that would absolutely change sort of the landscape of what went on. But that was Paul's gospel. He calls it his gospel in Galatians. And if you want to know, how did he come to this conclusion? How did he come to the conclusion? Because again, not everyone did. Even Peter didn't. You remember Peter in, in uh, Acts 10? Peter, even after he's come to confess Jesus as the Messiah, won't eat certain foods with people, believing he still had to keep the Torah and the purity laws. So he didn't even get it at first. And if you want to know, what's the rationale for this for Paul? Like, what's his logic? Like, why Jesus the Messiah leads to no circumcision and not keeping the Torah? If you're curious about that, how did he reason through that? Read the book of Romans. 
and the book of Galatians and Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians. Paul's letters are largely him working out his theology of Jesus as the Messiah in his particular context. That's what they are. They're his way of explaining his gospel, which is Jesus the Messiah plus nothing equals covenant with Yahweh, equals love of God and love of neighbor. And that's what he's preaching. And in fact, he's so passionate about this, he calls people who are trying to preach a Jesus the Messiah and circumcision and the law, he calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. What a riff on circumcision. Mutilators. He is so strong, Paul is, and passionate that it is not Jesus plus anything as an asset in your life, but the implications of Jesus being the Messiah means that when you look at your asset and liability sheet, if your goal is love of God, all you need now, all you need on your asset list is to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's it. It's as easy as that and as complex as that. It's as simple as that and as difficult as that at the same time. And so that's what he's preaching in Philippians 3. So I want to conclude with this. I kind of set it up. Here's the ending part. I think for us, we got to ask ourselves two questions in light of Philippians 3, especially if we're moving towards a place of deeper maturity in the faith place of maturity. The first question you have to ask yourself is what's your purpose? Why do you exist? What's your pursuit? What's your goal? What's your end game? Truly, your overarching, all-consuming reason for your existence, your purpose, your goal. Paul says it should be this, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That should be why you're breathing right now as your ultimate goal. Is it? That's a question you have to ask yourself. What are you really living for? What are you really living for? The second question you have to ask yourself is what's on your asset list? And what's on your liability list? I mean, if that's your goal, or given your goals, maybe that's not your goal, but given your goals, what's on your asset list? And what's on your liability list? And if you were to write down your assets when it comes to the reason you exist and your purpose, if you were to just list your assets, what would be under the asset column? For Paul, he's got one thing. And everything else he considers dung. Uses kind of strong language here, but, well, there are no children present, but I'm still not going to say the strong language he actually uses in the sentence. He considers everything else in comparison to that one asset a loss. Not worth even pursuing. And that one asset is to know the Messiah. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
Now, I'm gonna, I want to speak specifically uh, to those of you that maybe have been in the faith for a while, that kind of been Christians and doing this walk for a long time, um, as, you know, I have for many years. I think there's a great temptation uh, that we face as we walk this journey for quite some time. And we're passionate about God. We say that. And we say we love Jesus. But one of the temptations that often creeps in is we begin to put on our spiritual asset list things we do for God instead of God. I mean, and it's so sleight of hand, too, if you're not careful. You begin to think about the way you serve God as an asset to your love for God rather than God being the asset, Jesus in particular as the Messiah. It's easy for us, just like it would have been for people in Paul's day, to have a Jesus plus asset list based through the things that we do, the things that we do for God. And, and they're good things. Don't hear me wrong. They're good things. Mission trips, serving the poor, trying to raise your family in the ways of the I mean, there's, you know, there's all kind of ways that we may want to live out our faith that aren't bad, but what easily creeps in is that you begin to think about the things you've done for God as what keeps you in covenant with God rather than one thing that you really think is an asset, that you're actually just pursuing one thing, and that is to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I mean, I admit I struggle with this personally. I mean, I'll give you a little bit of vulnerability here. When I look at my life, it's quite easy for me to begin to put in the asset list things that I've done for God rather than my asset is God in Christ. You know, I think my own life, I've got a few things here. You know, I, when I graduated college, I graduated as an industrial engineer from Georgia Tech and kind of had a pretty lucrative career uh, trajectory, and I left it. I left all of it to go to seminary because I thought that was God's call in my life. I think it was. I sure hope it was. But I left that to go there. I've, I've done 11 years of graduate studies in theology, culminating in a PhD in theology. I've taught New Testament, Old Testament, and theology at the university level and published numerous books on the Christian faith. I've been a pastor, an elder, a deacon, a worship leader. I've preached more times than I can count. Taught Sunday school at numerous churches, led small groups, pursued missionary work, led people to Christ, started a Christian school, and I'm currently attempting to raise six kids in the ways of the Lord. It's going better or worse, depending on what day you're asking me. And if I don't consider all of that rubbish in comparison to one single thing, one single asset, if I start to think of those things alongside of my pursuit of Jesus, then I've failed. I've missed it. I've missed it. Because the only asset, Paul says, that we need to have down on our list, the only asset, is to know the Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And everything else, everything else needs to serve that purpose. So those things that I've done, yeah, they can be good, they can be fine. But they become a liability when they compete with the one asset of Jesus. And they can. Good things can actually become liabilities if they begin to compete 
with the one asset of Jesus as the Messiah. So here's some questions we have to face, and I say we, because I'm with you. Do we want to do well at our jobs, or do we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings? Do you want to preserve your health, or to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you want to see your kids grow and live a full life? Or know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? Do you want to store away a nice savings for retirement? Or do you want to know the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings? And why do I put it either or that way? Because quite frankly, knowledge of the Messiah and a wholehearted pursuit of him may lead to not having those other things. Due to the persecution, evil, and harm that may come from an unmovable devotion to know the Messiah. It's happening today. We got brothers and sisters all across the world that have none of those things I listed because of their wholehearted, unwavering pursuit of the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And if you think... It would be a loss if your life ends early in years for the sake of a deeper participation in Christ. Or if you no longer could provide for your family as well as you do for the sake of Christ. Or if you left your family, your friends, the familiarity and comfort of your present situation for the sake of pursuing Christ. If you never saw retirement for the sake of pursuing Christ. If you think any of this would be a loss... The way you're running your life's business is not patterned after the Apostle Paul. Because according to Paul, what you would gain is of so much more infinite value than what you would lose. And in fact, Paul would call all those things rubbish in comparison to deeper knowledge of the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So the final big question is this. Is Jesus the Messiah a part of your life? Or is he the all-consuming pursuit of your life? Does your faith in Jesus as a Messiah play a role in your daily life? Or does it orient everything else you do in life? We all must do a life audit we have to take time to look at how your time is spent, how your day and week and month is structured, how you're using your finances, your resources. And we all have to ask ourselves, does it display an overarching orientation towards knowing the Messiah and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? When it does, when our life is truly oriented to that one single asset, then at least according to Paul, we know we are running a successful life business. Amen.